I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, the deaths of Melbourne entertainment icon Ernie Sigley and Rolling Stone drummer Charlie Watts. Darren Hinch, welcome to That's Life Yet Again. Good morning, Sunshine. How has your week been since we last spoke? Uh, well, we're still still here, still locked down, and uh, I'm spending my time doing a lot of writing, but also on my balcony garden doing some weeding and some sweeping and some repotting. So, and, I, and my lemon tree produced another lemon. So that, that that's that's what you re, that's what we reduced to for success stories during <laughs> lockdown. Well, the weather is starting to change. Uh, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. We've had a couple of beautiful days. On, on my Goya walks, my get off your ass walks, um, I've, I've photographed some beautiful flowers that are coming out now. The magnolias are just totally in bloom, which is wonderful. Now, you put all those photographs up on, on, on your Facebook page. Yeah, I do. So anyone who's on Facebook, get onto that. What's the Facebook page called? I'm not quite sure how Facebook works, to be honest. I, I don't know, just Darren Hinch Facebook. Darren yeah. Hinch Facebook. It's my personal page, yeah, and I... Um, Actually, I, I, I enjoy doing it. I've got like <clears throat> 26,000 followers on, on that Facebook page and the Justice Party Facebook page has more than 100,000 followers. So it, it's, it's a good means of communication. Darren, uh, we've lost a couple of people who were instrumental in people's lives, I guess, in the last uh, 80 years. Uh, yeah. Since we've been doing this podcast, quite a few people have passed away that we've paid uh, tribute to. How, how do you feel about all that, given yeah, well, we're the one getting older me, ourselves? Yeah, well, you know, it's the old joke, you read the obit pages every morning to see if you get a mention. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it really hit me when, when Andrew Peacock um, died, and I, I we talked about it on the, on the podcast. Um I remember the first time I ever met him, there were four of us at the National Press Club in Washington. There was him, there was me, there was the Dean of the Washington Press, the White House Press Corps, uh, Ross Mark, an Australian, and there's Peter Costigan, the Herald and Whitby Times correspondent who went on to become Lord Mayor of Melbourne. And that was the first time I ever met Peacock and had a drink with him as a, as a young politician and I'm a young journo. And now I'm the only one still alive. Out of the four of us. Yeah, well, I, I sometimes go for a walk near the Carlton's or in the Carlton Cemetery, near the Prime Ministerial Garden. I've told you this before. I was just looking at a few little plaques, uh, just tiny little plaques where the roses are. And mm. there was a plaque to Peter Costigan. So obviously his ashes had been spread there. And I, I thought at the time, this guy on television, a journalist, uh, Lord Mayor, and this is what happens to us. We become... He's a, I'll tell you a funny Peter Costigan story. When we were in New York, he was based there for, for the Herald and I was based there for Fairfax. Um, Peter was a former motoring editor of the Melbourne Herald. In New York, he failed his driving test. <laughs> <laughs> because, I think from memory, because he used different feet on the brake and the accelerator. Right which is unusual, um, but I suppose if you're a very good driver, he was. That's what he did. In fact, he drove the car with me in it when we retraced the steps of Teddy Kennedy at Chappaquiddick, and we drove over the same bridge that he drove off in his Cadillac and killed Mary Jo Kopechny. And as we drove over the bridge to reconstruct the crime, um, we nearly went off the bridge too, because it was a very low wooden bridge. And I said to Costigan, Jesus, let's not recreate it too much here. <laughs> we almost went off the thing ourselves. Well, I, I take it you guys had not been drinking. 
No, we had not. No, it was during, and it was during the day, not at one o'clock in the morning. That was a disgusting thing. I covered that case from go to woe, and Teddy turned up in court wearing a neck brace to make it look more sympathetic. Um, after, no, I covered the inquest where they found out in, in, that she came from Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. I interviewed her parents, um, but she had a pocket of air. She could have been saved, um, but he got out of the car, left her there, and walked past umpteen houses where the lights were on to get back to the party and and call his chauffeur to come and help him out and get him out of there. And they got him off the island. Um, he didn't give a damn about Mary Jo Beckley dying in the car. And I, I never forgave Kennedy for that. That would be a difficult... Well, for a normal person, that would be a difficult thing to live with all your life. Yes. Knowing that. And you know what? After he got back to the hotel, he got back to his hotel at Edgartown uh, in Massachusetts. He deliberately went downstairs at 3am to talk to the duty manager to, to, to establish an alibi. He'd changed into dry clothes. He was, and he wanted to establish an alibi that he was there, that he wasn't on the island when it all happened, you know. Um, he, he did not come... And, and then he gave a, a, a speech, finally, on, on a televised speech, in which he invoked the curse of the Kennedy family. You know, he, I remember sitting there watching him thinking, you bastard. You know, he's talking about the death of his brother, John and his brother Bobby, and then talking again about um, is there some sort of curse on the Kennedy family? He got drunk. He drove her down there to deliberately turned off a turned off a very well tar sealed road, turned right uh, at an acute angle onto a dirt track, uh, a dirt road which led down to the beach where he obviously planned to do some horizontal folk dancing. And uh, and ironically, another girl's purse was found in the back of the car. Uh, Keo, her name was, and uh, they thought maybe she had uh, she had died too, but she'd she'd left her, her bag in the back of the car when she had a lift earlier in, in earlier in the night, and then his mob moved in, the Kennedy squad moved in, they cleaned out all the booze bottles from the the party hat room party house, got all the girls that had been there, the, they called the boiler room girls, got who had been there with the Kennedys. Uh, they got, them, got them all off the island, got Kennedy off the island before the police chief even knew he'd been there. It's uh, just brutal, isn't it? Just back to Costigan, that's uh, part of a big family, uh, Peter Costigan. Yes, was, his brother was, was, was Frank. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. His brother was a royal commissioner who investigated, well, I remember the Goanna stuff that happened in the 1980s, which is code for Kerry Packer. Mm. And uh, Malcolm Turnbull was involved in... Uh, in, in that episode as well. Yeah, oh, the Costigan family has a, has a big, big, uh, big history in, in Victoria. Um, Peter and I worked together in New York for, for a long time. We covered a lot of stories together. We both went to Martin, Martin Luther King's assassination uh, story uh, in um, Memphis and Atlanta, Georgia. And ironically, Costigan and I check into a hotel, in, a motel in uh, Peachtree Street, Atlanta, and while we were there, a bullet was fired through the window of the motel. And we didn't know why until we suddenly found out that the motel was owned by Lester Maddox, who was the racist governor of Georgia, who at the funeral of Martin Luther King refused to lower the state flag to half-mast on the governor's mansion and Un parliament house. Unbelievable times. Uh, mm. Well, we, we started talking about people who uh, died in the past couple of weeks and uh, the reason was because, first of all, Ernie Sigley, who um, I worked with for many years at uh, 3AW, he was, you know, he, for, for a period there in the 70s, 
He was Melbourne. I, I remember 1974. He was bigger than big doing his Tonight Show twice a week. Uh, what were your dealings with Ernie? Well, two yeah. things. I should I should say, first of all, I wasn't living in Australia when Ernie was a huge TV star in Melbourne. So the Ernie Sigley show, I, I didn't ever see. Uh, he won umpteen logies, I know. Uh, he and Ding Dong, Denise Drysdale, were um, an amazing team, the chicken walk and all that sort of stuff, and singing um, Hey Paula, and they had hit songs, they had TV shows. He was a huge star. I only met him when I joined 3AW. Um, we got on pretty well. Uh, we did go on very well, and he was very popular on the afternoon show. Um, I've got to say, though, having having always said all history owes the dead is the truth, is that Ernie could be fairly cantankerous uh, with his staff. Uh, I think you alluded to that in one of your tributes <laughs> to him. Um, I, I will say that I had, I've got two stories, one bad, two one good. Um, I had a couple of his female producers in tears in my office because, because Ernie could be a very hard task master at times, right? But my funniest Ernie Sigley story was I was the head of the Variety Club in Melbourne and as a fundraiser, we, I arranged to charter a plane and fly a, a, fly a plane of celebs to Sydney for the opening night of Cats, right? And we went there. Um, we, the, the, the opening night of Cats was delayed because um, there was a bomb scare before it started, but it was a lovely opening night. And then we uh, we had a party afterwards and for the Variety Club people who'd flown up on this plane. And we're standing there in, at this party and Ernie and I are standing together and, and his wife, Glennis, and, uh, and Ernie's eating a chicken sandwich. And suddenly he looks down and Darren Hinch is rolling around on the floor with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> and Ernie kept eating his chicken sandwich. He was very <laughs> fond of his food. The background to it was that Glennis had a, um, an Isadora Duncan sort of floaty gown on with sort of sl big sleeves. And as she turned, she wafted it over a, a candle and her dress caught fire. Oh. And it, it, it burnt her arm and seared her eyebrows. I mean, was that serious? And I just grabbed her, not knowing what to do, but I just saw this woman on fire. I just grabbed her and rolled her around the ground and put the fire out. Meanwhile, Ernie kept eating his chicken sandwich. And Ernie kept eating. So I remember Ernie kept standing eating his chicken sandwich thinking, why is Darren Hinch rolling around on the ground with my wife? Uh, yeah, look, he was a, a one-off character. You know, this is a guy who grew up, he had seven... Well, there were seven brothers in his family, so he was one of oh. seven. His, his dad was a boiler maker in, in Footscray, mm -hmm. and uh, he, he got out of Footscray through singing. He had a, a beautiful voice when he was young uh, in the choir, uh, got into showbiz. He, um, he uh, uh, was panelling uh, on 3DB, a great radio station, which mm -hmm. now is Double TFM. Oh, I don't know what else they've changed it to now. And he used to be the panel operator there, and uh, one of his skills was he used to break wind into the, mi into the microphone in time with the news pips. <laughs> <laughs> he used to laugh about that. that, that uh, that's not that, that terrible old joke. I call him a dick joke because my father's name was Dick, and uh, it was about the guy who says, do you know, I bet you a dollar I can fart whenever I want to. <laughs> and his mate says, okay, here's a dollar. I your bet's on. Fart. He said, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you 
go. Well, he, he then he then went overseas. He he worked at uh, Radio Luxembourg and. Oh, yeah, that was, that was the pirate, it was like the, there was the pirate radio station, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, they used to get in because in, back in those days you had to get a, you had to have a license to have a yeah. radio station. It was like Radio Caroline, I think, in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, if they could sort of broadcast, they, they used to broadcast from a ship outside of uh, uh, England's sort of territorial right. zone. Uh, and, and young people would listen to it because they played the music. It wasn't stodgy BBC government radio. It was trendy. Uh well, the same in New Zealand. And I was offered a job on Radio Caroline, actually. didn't take it. But, uh, um, yeah, and they, 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 they appealed to young people because they played the music that the, other, the major stations, stodgy stations, didn't play. I mean, when I was growing up, we, we played pop music once a week, and it was called the Hit Parade. You know, you'd never heard music on, on your local radio station. They had the Women's Hour, and they had this hour, and the Gardening Hour. But um, actual hit music, the hit music of the day, was only played once a week when the top ten top was, was played on a Sunday night, the Hit Parade. Well, Ernie then came back, and uh, he, um, he, he was one of the guys who interviewed the Beatles, and your mate... Bob Rogers, Bob Rogers, one yeah. of those guys too. So uh, he was, um, you know, quintessentially Melbourne. Of course, you know, their, their careers were quite similar in some funny ways because they both went on to have television shows. Bob did a Tonight Show in Sydney. Um, Bob started at fifteen as a panel operator, I think, at Three X Roy. And they both went on to have great radio careers and then television careers. And and Bob actually went to London and flew to Australia with the Beatles. And well, toured with the Beatles. I yeah. seem to think Ernie Sidley did a similar thing, so they must have been on the same trip because they would have flown they, they could have people been, could over have been. there to meet them and then come back and follow them around and, uh, and interview them. Um, amazing times. The Beatles, uh, Darren, were you, were you a fan? Was it oh, a huge fan. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Twist and Shout and Stomp and all that. Yeah, because Stomp was a d- dance in Sydney in the 60s, um, early 60s. Uh, I was working for the Sydney Sun when they, when they first came to Australia, probably 64, I suppose it was. I saw saw them at um, at Sydney Stadium. Uh, they, they had the replaced drummer there because Ringo was, had been sick and... I think the guy's name was Sutcliffe, I can't remember, but they had a replaced drummer. Uh, it was an extraordinary thing. I mean, we, when you saw the crowds in Melbourne, the crowds in Adelaide, uh, the adoration of the Beatles was, was just amazing. You know? And then one of, one of the joys of my latter life, later life was um, when I was working for Sunday Night a few years ago, uh, they flew me to New York to interview Yoko Ono. And uh, we had a very, had a very good time. Um, they... Typically, the same way when we interviewed Lauren Bacall, the PR people said, don't talk about Humphrey Bogart, which is bullshit. Um, so when I talked to Yoko Ono, apparently my producer was told, don't mention John Lennon, which is the only reason you're talking to her, right? <laughs> and we had a wonderful conversation, and uh, and uh, she, she opened up beautifully uh, because I said to her, you know, you are the most hated woman in the world. She said, why? I said, because you broke up the Beatles. And, uh, and I said... and. You, you, the worst thing was, you, you weren't only breaking up the Beatles because with John Lennon, but you were Asian. You weren't some white blonde. And she was, she opened up beautifully about it. I was quite right. I mean, people thought, what's he doing with her, you know? Uh, it was a very, a very racist attitude by, by a lot of people, a lot of Beatles fans. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we had a great interview. And at the end of it, she said... Um, 
oh, we've got to have a photograph. We stood outside the, 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 the interview room and had a picture, a smiling photo taken, which I cherish. But uh, while I was asking about being Asian and whatever, her PR people apparently were almost physically strangling my producers in the background. I could see this going on and pretended I couldn't. You know. <laughs> Well, the early 60s, I mean, they, they were ushering in this change in social attitudes, uh, weren't they? I mean, we'd, we'd been through the 50s after the Second World War. Late, late 50s, we had Elvis Presley brought it in with Heartbreak Hotel, you know. That was something we'd never heard, that sort of music. And that brought it in and we were ready for it. Uh, then came the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which is a great segue into the sad death of Charlie Watts. Yes, right. who, who died recently. At he the died age recently. Of 80, the, 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 the Rolling Stones drummer. Uh, he was an, he was an extraordinary person for a rock star. I mean, he wore several rose suits. Uh, he didn't he didn't indulge in all the um, in all the, the the normal rock star stuff. You know, um, the groupies and all that. He was a very studious and an and intense intensely intelligent person. Um, I'll tell you two quick stories about him. Um, one when uh, uh, one night after I think it was a, a, a performance I'd done a huge performance in Amsterdam, and uh, and after performance Jagger and, uh, and 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 Richards went off on the Terps, and Charlie went back to his room and went to bed. Um, at five o'clock in the morning, when Jagger gets back to his hotel, this is called one of the biographies I read. Um, he phoned up Charlie Watson and said, uh, you know, hey, get out of bed. Where's my effing drummer? Get, you know, you know, get your ass over here. Where's my effing drummer? And Charlie got out of bed, had a shower, got dressed in his Savile Row suit, put on his aftershave and a tie, walked down, knocked on the door, and when Jagger opened it, he threw a left hook and knocked him ass over tip <laughs> over a plate of salmon. <laughs> Almost knocked him into the into the into the canal out the window, open window. Somebody had to grab him. I think Richard had to grab Mick as he almost went out the window. Yeah, knocked him with a huge left hook. And Charlie said, "I am not your effing drummer. You're my effing singer." <laughs> and walked him. out. <laughs> Good on him. Good now, on the, him. The, the interesting thing about the Rolling Stones is this. I mean, you're, we mentioned the Beatles. You're either a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan. For young women, nice girls followed the Beatles and other girls, um, more risque, followed the Rolling Stones. Jackie Weaver followed the Rolling Stones, I must admit. And I was a Beatles fan. Um, and then for decades, I wasn't really interested. I knew who they were and what they did and, and get no satisfaction and get off my cloud. And I knew some of the songs, but it wasn't a big fan until until they, the Rolling Stones, I don't know what year it was, they came out here to do the Voodoo Lounge tour. And I knew that Jackie was a fan and I managed to get an invitation to a cocktail party that Jeff Kennett put on for the Rolling Stones. And at that party, I engineered, now this is love for you, I engineered a photograph of me and Jackie and Mick Jagger, all right? And it was a lovely photo of her standing next to Mick smiling and me on the side. For her birthday, a year later, I had the photo blown up to about five, six feet um, and had me cut out of the picture. 
So it's just Mick Jagger and Jackie Weaver in a photograph. And then we went to the MCG, the Voodoo Lounge Tour. And as I said, I wasn't a Stones fan. But watching that performance by Mick Jagger, he would have covered more ground at the MCG that night than a, than, than, than a winger would at a grand final. He had the stage that stretched from one boundary to the other, and he's just, he just unstoppable. He just danced and ran and leapt across the stage back and forth for hours. It was one of the most incredible um, uh, concerts you could ever see, and I'll never forget it. And I do remember seeing them once, though, in, when I lived in New York. Um, they were doing opening a tour, and they were going to sing at the Madison Square. Just remembered, just remembered. They sang it. They were going to sing at the Madison at Madison Square Garden. So I went down there for a daytime press conference, and there's Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones on the back of a truck, singing Brown Sugar at lunchtime. Un unbelievable. And, yeah, and of course, well, he's moving around and jumping around. <coughs> he has to sing as well, which That's uh, right. uh, is not that easy. Most other people, most other stars, or many other stars, who have been running around and jumping around have been known and been caught miming, not actually singing. But he didn't. He sang every, every word of it, you know? And there's not much of him, uh, Darren. Um, you got up close to him. He, he looks no bigger than a pencil, to be oh, honest. Oh, skinny. Oh, tiny. Yeah. And, just, that, just, and that face and those lips. <laughs> I mean, he, he was an advertisement for Botox before Botox. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they've all sort of aged in that sort of crabby uh, old rock star way, uh, haven't yeah, they? Well, yeah. they've well, got a new tour going off in Los Angeles, starting in Los Angeles, and it was only a, 10 days ago that we found out that Charlie had cancelled. So we should have known then that he was quite sick because he was a really professional. He loved jazz, you know. He loved jazz uh, to the extent that one, day, one time when he was in Australia, the Rolling Stones were in Perth and Mick Jagger's ex-girlfriend uh, in, in the US or UK committed suicide that day, right? And so out of respect, the Rolling Stones um, cancelled that night's performance in Perth. But Charlie Watts, instead of going on the booze with the, with the boys, wandered off and found a jazz club in Perth and turned up and said, can I play the drums for a bit? And he gave a performance. Here's a Rolling Stone sitting there quietly in a small jazz club in Perth playing the drums. Quite remarkable given how long they've been together for, mm. too. <coughs> Darren, uh, you know, what, 50, 60 S years? 60 years. Together. They're, they're, uh, they're a phenomenon, really. I guess we probably won't see that ever uh, again with uh, rock bands. Uh, who, who are the new ones coming through? Uh, I mean, not, not that I follow music. Well, that I, I don't know. But, but I, one thing we should mention is that it, it might be, news may supersede us, but uh, there's been a great teasing campaign that ABBA are on their way back. Well, now yeah. That's, they now were. that's um, that's from that's fifty years ago. What were your forty memories, years ago? What were your memories of Abbott, Darren? Hey, I'm the, I was still am the president of the Abbott Fan Club oh, in Australia. Wow! How did, yeah. did you get elected to that position? Or is no, that I just appointed? I just made it up. Um, <laughs> what happened was I was living in Sydney. I was the editor of the Sydney Sun. This is back in the uh, what, in the seventies, yeah. And uh, I'm going to work one day, and I. I there's a little kid, my neighbour, he's about three on his tricycle, and he's singing, uh, Fernando, Fernando, and I thought, what Sorry, Darren, can you, can you sing that again? <laughs> no, uh, I couldn't understand, what's this little kid singing about Fernando? And so I went to work and started to talk to people about 
this new group called ABBA, and they did get their biggest start in Australia. I mean, they, they won some competition like Eurovision or something, but their biggest number, first number one hit was in Australia. And anyway, I decided that, I, that this was a group that was going to go places, and I decided to start a weekly, to, we were in a bitter circulation battle with the Daily Mirror in Sydney, so I started a weekly ABBA fan page. And uh, when, I announced, when I announced it, it was amazing because, hold on, let me just turn my computer off. Oh, okay. Anyway, I, um, I, I had this page and, within, and I said, you know, write in and we'll, you'll become a member of the ABBA fan club. And I just made it up. And, uh, and, and, and as president of the ABBA fan club, uh, we said to people, just write and we'll send you a little certificate. And I had to go upstairs to management on, you know, on Mahogany Row and say to them, look, I've just got, in two days, I've got 25,000 letters in Mount Sydney. I said, they I have to send out at 25 cents a piece, so I, I need to increase my budget. You know? <laughs> You've <laughs> and, made a monster. And, and a monster. And, uh, I mean, we, we could have taken the name and merchandised it, I suppose. I mean, I did, I did speak... After it all went bizarre, mad, I did speak to their to their manager, and he was very impressed. Uh, but I became I was the president of the ABBA fan club, and the editor of the West Australian newspaper wrote to me saying, "Darren, how do we get the state rights to this?" And I said, "I oh, just will just just pay us a fee of two hundred dollars a week, and and uh, and, and, and pay for our postage, and, and you you can you can have it." So so suddenly we got this ABBA fan club all over Australia which I started just on a whim because a little kid on the tricycle singing Fernando. Well, uh, and Molly Meldrum was instrumental in also... He was. ...making them big because, uh, you know, he was <coughs> running Countdown at that stage and uh, and they'd won the Eurovision Song Contest uh, yeah. with one of their songs. I'm not sure which one it was. And Molly then started playing their video clips on Countdown and uh, you, I uh, didn't know your story, but all of that came together... That's true. And, 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 I mean, and Dancing, Dancing Queen became the greatest disco song of all time, you know. Um, the, the weird thing was that um, I went to their concert uh, in, in, in Sydney um, and it pissed with rain. It was like being in the mud. I think we didn't stay all the time. And they had actually, uh, the, 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 the men had, had started doing some other stuff, which, uh, which was, you know, uh, Sort of a, not a musical, some sort of musical experiment, and they started playing some of that stuff, which wasn't as good. But their, their hits music was I mean, was fantastic. We we put out, I put out a an ABBA poster of uh, Anna, uh, and uh, she's there in a um, in a tight um, leotard, which she's almost wearing internally. Um, and <laughs> we put this picture out on a poster. And there would be people were tearing them off the streets. These well, posters of of of, 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 of Agnetha, yeah, that, she was very very attractive, blonde in that Swedish blonde sort of way. Oh yeah, um, yeah. She she you know she, she, had, she had a terrible time for a while. She um she married a fan. Um, and that didn't work out well, uh, understandably. Um, but she married a fan, and they, then they broke up, of course, and disappeared. And now, all these years later, 30, 40 years later, looks like they're they've, they've putting together a new album. Um, they've been teasing it on TikTok and on other things. So I reckon even maybe by the time we get this out, there'll be news that ABBA is back. Well, it would be fascinating to see what they... Uh 
what they come up with because their music of the series. I'm interrupting ironically. It was a terrible joke around the time that Aberfan was also the name uh, of a terrible mine disaster in Wales. Aberfan. Yeah, and Aberfan, the, the, the mine at Aberfan collapsed and killed a lot of people. So using the term Aberfan was, was, was quite brutal. Well, was that the one that was the focus of the, uh, the, the British TV show, uh, The Monarchy or something, uh, where, where the kids were in the school and the, 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 the slug of the, of the mine sort of went in and covered up the school and killed a lot of children? Was, is, that, is that what we're talking about? I, I, I don't know. There was a, there was no, there was a a, a, a mass murder of school children in in Scotland. Ah, yeah, that. Uh, be because good. that um, the the English tennis player um, Murray, uh, he, Andy Murray, Andy Murray was a student at that school at that time, right. and uh, about 13, 13, 12 or thirteen kids, I think, were, were, were executed, were assassinated that day. You know. Well, Abba, magnificent sound, uh, crystal clear, beautiful melodies. Mm. Uh, the voices of the girls was uh, great. Uh, he came into 3AW once, Bjorn, uh, and uh, he, he was interviewed by Ernie Sigley, who we spoke about uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they're iconic, I guess, aren't they? Well, they, they're an amazing group, and they took the world by storm. And it started here in Australia. I mean, the fact that we are now all these years, decades later, people are still excited about. I mean, watching them, you know, the, the morning news and watch sunrise, people are absolutely orgasmic that maybe Abba's coming back. Mr. Hinch, on that note, uh, thank you very much yeah. again for your hey, time. Hey, good, good, good to get through a, a whole podcast without mentioning COVID. So we'll talk about it next week. We will. <laughs>